Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Picturing the South was a series launched in 1996 by the High Museum. They commissioned photographers to depict the South in any meaningful way. The result was a diverse range of perspectives on what the South represented to those photographers. Now, 25 years later, the High has put together a commemorative exhibition to highlight those artists with new photographs on view at the museum. Later this hour, We'll hear about this show as City Lights producer Summer Evans talks with the High's curator of photography, Gregory Harris, and renowned Atlanta photographer Sheila Prebright. First, at age 100, Betty Reed Soskin is the oldest active ranger in the U.S. National Park Service. And while her longevity is remarkable, even more extraordinary is the way she challenges us all to move together toward a more perfect union. A new documentary about her life, No Time to Waste, was screened at the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival in September, where she received the first Humanitarian Award for Promoting Human Well-Being and Enlightenment. Ms. Soskin joins me now via Zoom with the filmmaker, Carl Beidelman. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you very much. Betty, your Park Service colleague, Kelly English, describes you as Betty Davis, Angela Davis, and Yoda, all in one. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that's the way she describes it. <laughs> I, I would say that's some high praise on all three counts. Would you tell us about your upbringing in the early 20th century? I was born in Detroit, Michigan, left there at the age of three to go back to New Orleans, which was my family's home. 
and came to California at six years old. And I've been here ever since. In the film, we see you speaking about your great-grandmother who was born into slavery in 1846. Yes, she was. And she wasn't freed until she was 19 years old. What kind of feedback or response have you received from people after sharing her story? That has surprised me because I didn't know about slavery until I was in school. I don't think that anyone told the story of of slavery to their children. I think it was too painful. It wasn't until I was in school I began to hear about slavery. And then I didn't apply it to myself until much later. But you had this matriarch. Yes. It came full-blown for me when, when I was checking out my history. And I learned that my great-grandmother was born in 1846. She lived to be 102, which meant that she died in 1948. My mother, who was raised by my great-grandmother, was born in 1894 and lived to be 101, dying in 1995. I was born in 1921, and I'm still here, which means that in these three lives, it's almost 300 years of history. And it isn't until recently that I've begun to fully appreciate that. I was 27 years old, married, and a mother by the time my slave ancestor died. I knew her as a matriarch of my family. She was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation when she was 19. Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln and my great-grandmother were alive at the same time. It was his action that freed her from slavery. Um, What led you to become a National Park Service ranger at age 85? I really don't even know. I was working as a field representative for a couple of members of the California State Assembly, Dion Ehringer and Lonnie Hancock later, who actually became a state senator. And I was working in a one-person satellite office alone and taking in all the things that my area consisted of. And in that time, the park was being created. And they were meeting about how it was to be. And I became very interested in the fact the park was being created in honor of the women who worked for the men who were overseas. That was only part of the story. The story really was much, much larger than that. And it was in finding out by checking out stories that all of this became very important to me. And I began to help to shape the park, which I went on doing for four years. At the end of four years, we came a park ranger. Yeah. You work at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park. Yes. And in the documentary, you talk about not finding yourself in the character of Rosie the Riveter. How was that emblematic of American history at large. I don't know how I discovered that. 
I didn't see any signs of the people that I knew in the narrative. And gradually, I came into the picture long about the time when I discovered the Rosie Memorial. And I was in the picture by that time. And it was kind of wonderful that in the memorial, it's full length of a victory ship. It has plaques in the ground that tell the story as you're walking one direction. And when you're coming back, it has quotes from the present day Rosies. It's an extremely wonderful, wonderful moving thing. And it's, it's a timeline. Yes. And you helped change the narrative of that timeline. Yes, I think I did. I don't know that I understood that until recently. But I think that over time, my contributions have added much, much to the story. Indeed. Carl, how did you find out about Betty's story? Well, Lois, I I did what most freelancers do, which is answer the phone. (laughs) My production partner, Doug McConnell, got a phone call from uh, a friend he knows at Rosie the Riveter Trust, which is the nonprofit association that supports that national park. Marsha was looking for someone who knew something about film or television to help capture the story of this wonderful person on staff. They had a wonderful ranger. And uh, we were in the middle of something, but we thought, well, we'll always come and take a meeting, especially if it's in the national parks. So we came to the visitor center at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront Historical Park, which is quite a mouthful. And we went into the basement for a meeting, sat around a table and uh, with a few park rangers and, and one of them that was this woman named Betty. So the meeting started and Betty started to talk and Doug and I looked at each other. And once we were able to pry our jaws up off the table, we just looked at each other and said, we're doing this. We'll find a way. The nonprofit had not raised any money for this. But we said, literally, there was no time to waste. Let's get started. We jumped in and the next month we were filming with Betty. I mean, she was just remarkable. She just was was so incredibly insightful and eloquent and spoke in such a way that it just blew us away. So we, we were hooked. How long have you been filming the documentary? Well, the bad news about it actually turned into good news. The bad news of not having enough money and of the nonprofit struggling along to get little bits and pieces of money over the years, the production spanned six years, primarily because we just didn't have the funds to do all of the travel that we needed or we had to wait on things. The good news is so many things happened in Betty's life. Her life accelerated beyond all. Uh, imagination just in the last 10 years of her life. So because we couldn't complete the filming in the time that we normally would, which would have been, this might've been a two-year project, took six years. We happened to be able to be there for so many wonderful events in her life that, that we otherwise would have missed. So it was very serendipitous. I think the only thing that the, the film suffers from is because it was so lightly funded, as many documentaries are. We didn't get the benefit of having a larger crew who could sit around and argue about the story and constantly make it better. It wound up being decided mostly on my desk 
with my dog curled up at my feet, and we'd talk about edits, and then we'd proceed from there. <laughs> well, it sounds like you had some excellent assistance there because the film itself is just gorgeous. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with U.S. National Park Service ranger Betty Reed Soskin and filmmaker Carl Biddleman about the new documentary, No Time to Waste, The Urgent Mission of Betty Reed Soskin. Carl, what was it like to be there in 2015 and capture a phone call Betty receives. At first, we don't quite know what news is revealed to her. It's rather suspenseful. Do I need to insert spoiler alert here, or would you talk about that? I would say this to any filmmaker or anybody who creates art. There are some things that are out of your control and you have to be lucky. And this was one of them. I, I, I tell people this, the only reason that we captured that moment is that my director of photography, Stefan Runzel, and I had made a plan to go to the visitor center that day during Betty's talk, just so that we could see what the lighting in the theater was gonna be like and how we were going to need to light it when we began recording her presentations. And so we were there, and at the last minute, I said to Steph, why don't you just bring the little Sony camera along? We might as well shoot a little test footage rather than just look at it. And so there we were, standing in this auditorium, and, and Stefan just happened to be rolling when one of the volunteers came in, and you see him tapping Betty on the shoulder, and she leaves because part of her presentation is a 17-minute film. And so during that film, she goes out. She comes back and she, she walks past Stefan and me and she's just looking like she's seen a ghost and didn't tell us what was going on, went back into the theater. And so we had no idea that this was happening, but we were able to capture it simply because we happened to be there for a completely different purpose. But uh, she was completely blown away and so were we that that she had gotten a call inviting her to come to the White House to introduce President Obama at the 2015 Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And it was just, it was memorable, so much so, and, and, and this is a good example of what I've always told other filmmakers is that the most important thing, the audience will forgive the quality of the footage if the story is compelling. And in this case, we filmed that scene with no, no external microphone equipment, uh, a little Sony DSLR and on my iPhone, <laughs> just because that's what we had and you use what you had. We were not going to miss that moment. But yeah, much of that scene was filmed by me with my iPhone. Her colleagues worried that Betty had received bad news. Uh, yes, yes, I will. In fact, the news was very good. She returned to the theater and couldn't resist sharing it with her young audience. Inviting me to participate in the tree lighting ceremony and introduce the President of the United States. 
Betty was going to meet Barack Obama. Betty, was that President Obama himself on the phone? It actually was John. Oh, was it John Jarvis? Yes. At the time, John was the director of the National Park Service. Ah, Betty, what was going through your mind when you got that call? Oh, you have no idea. I have no recollection of what that was. I know that I was speaking to a a combined 10th grade class. And I told them what had happened. And I told them that I didn't know if I was supposed to be sharing it, but that they had to keep it a secret. (laughs) It was just larger than life. I love when you introduced President Obama. Oh, that, that was so incredible. I was standing on the stage. I was at a lectern. I was holding an evening bag that he'd been given to my aunt, Emily, on her 35th wedding anniversary. And she had given it to her 18-year-old granddaughter, Vivian, on her graduation from Xavier College in New Orleans. And Vivian had given it to me, and I had given it to my granddaughter. It was so real that it's almost with me now. In the bag was a picture of my great-grandmother, and a string of pearls that had been given to a young core worker when she was in Mississippi in 64. They were in that bag together, and I was was standing on the stage, and in those three minutes, three minutes, I was standing with the first Black president of the United States, and he was holding me, and we were backed up by a picture of the White House, which meant that that had been built by slaves and nobody in the world could have known what was going on but the three of us. Oh, I love it how after that you said, he puts the lie to white supremacy, he being President Obama. Oh, he did. He did. Betty, have other museums asked for your help in expanding their knowledge and materials, filling in those enormous gaps in our American history? No, they haven't. I don't even know whether they would be willing to to add to it. I just don't know. I don't know. Except that everything that I said was true for me, and I wanted it known, though I didn't know at the time that it would be so important. Hmm. It does seem, though, that your impact on the National Park Service has been tremendous. You mentioned John Jarvis, the head of the National Park Service, and he spoke about how grateful he is for the ways in which you've helped the Park Service move forward. And part of that is brought out in the film, Carl, when you incorporate park ranger Desiree Munoz's story. Yes, right. Betty is far too modest about this uh, when she says she doesn't know what her impact is. Um, There are testimonials in the film and testimonials that I've heard just in conversation from people with the Park Service who say that Betty's impact on how stories get told and which stories get told 
has been significant. John Jarvis just uh, recently submitted a little video for Betty on her 100th birthday, and, and he reiterated again that her impact has been foundational to, and particularly inspiring to younger rangers who are coming like Desiree and, and like so many others, and particularly uh, since the, the Park Service is doing a much better job now of recruiting and hiring people of color and encouraging them to include and represent their own stories. You know, it's fascinating. I, I didn't realize until I got more involved with the national parks that, I, you know, I always thought of national parks being these grand Western landscapes. But in reality, the, the, the National Park Service is the custodian of American history. All of our national historic sites are managed, cared for, and interpreted by the National Park Service. And so to do, to impact that institution in how we tell those stories and which stories we include, which is what Betty's done, is an enormous contribution to this country and to future generations. And she just won't tell you that herself. Hmm. Well, the film tells it magnificently. I hope so. Betty, I just love how you have tried and continue trying to change the world one conversation at a time. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful. Just received this award. Betty Reed Soskin, U.S. National Park Service Ranger at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park. She was joined by filmmaker Carl Biddleman. His new documentary is No Time to Waste, The Urgent Mission of Betty Reed Soskin. You can find out where to stream the film on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the High Museums picturing the South series. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Picturing the South was a series launched in 1996 by the High Museum. They commissioned photographers to depict the South in 
any meaningful way. The result was a diverse range of perspectives on what the South represented to those photographers. Now, 25 years later, the High has put together a commemorative exhibition to highlight those artists with new photographs on view at the museum, never before seen. City Lights producer Summer Evans sat down with the highest curator of photography, Gregory Harris, and renowned Atlanta photographer Sheila Prebride to discuss the exhibit. Harris began their conversation talking about how this series originated. So back in 1996, when the Olympics were coming to Atlanta, the High organized uh, a big survey exhibition that covered the entire history of photography in the South. And the show was really making the argument about the importance of the South in the history of American photography, where most histories kind of center on New York, perhaps Chicago or the San Francisco Bay area as these major centers for where the history of American photography happened. And this show was arguing for a broader view that emphasized the importance of the South. And the curator at the time, Ellen Florov, wanted to make sure that that survey was as up-to-date as possible. So she commissioned Sally Mann, Dawood Bay, and Alex Webb to make completely new work that would debut as part of that, that exhibition. Um, because the show was called Picturing the South, uh, when they decided that they wanted to keep doing these commissions because that first round had been so successful, they just kind of took on the name of the, the Picturing the South commissions. Mm -hmm. When I was scanning through the preview photos, I just loved the diverse range of photographs, you know, and how photographers show what the South means to them. It's not just like from one point of view. Can you describe how these pictures show the entire gamut of the South? So the, the way that the commissions are set up is that it's, it's very open-ended and the artists are given a lot of creative latitude to figure out what they want to shoot, how they want to make the pictures. Uh, we don't give them an assignment. The only parameters are that uh, the work has to be made in the region. And we don't really give them very hard definitions of what that is. But generally speaking, it's sort of the, the Mason-Dixon line south and west into Texas. But trying to puzzle out what is the south and how are we going to show it is one of the challenges that the artists work out as they're making the projects. But we've now done 16 commissions so far, and there's always been an eye toward bringing in different kinds of photographic voices into the, into the mix. They tend to, for the most part, come out of, for lack of a better word, a documentary tradition. They're photographers who you know, go out into the world and observe and try to make sense of it and respond to the, the people, places, and activities that they're, that they're finding. But several of the artists, you know, come from more of a fine art photography tradition, people like Sally Mann or Abe Morell, where they're kind of making some you know, kind of interventions into the, into the landscape and um, constructing something out of, you know, what they're seeing and what they have available to them. There's been a, you know, an embrace of a, a wide array of photographic approaches that have been brought into the, into the commissions. And all the photographers have to be from the South. Is that kind of a rule? No, it's too? not. Actually, I would say a third of photographers overall are, are from the South, um, but many of them are from elsewhere in the U.S. And one of them, Martin Parr, is actually from the U.K. 
it's funny as the the project has evolved you can kind of see the whatever the the priorities of the moment or that particular curator's uh, priorities are sort of reflected in one way or another in how the who is commissioned to make the work for a while the curators were hearing like how come you don't have enough southerners in the in the mix making pictures like why are you bringing in people from you know the northeast or california to make the work like we need more southern voices as part of it so then there was an effort to you know commission a bunch of southerners at one point so um that's kind of always reflected in who's commissioned kind of where they're from but there's an eye towards some kind of you know, geographic diversity but there have been a number of southerners who have contributed to the project yeah no that's interesting like Photographing the South from a Southerner's point of view is probably vastly different than someone from the UK and how they see the South. So that's cool that you have a blend of those two perspectives in this exhibition. Yeah, in some ways you can see it in the work. I mean, Martin Parr, for example, uh, really embraced his his status as an outsider and brought a, a very different kind of sense of humor and criticism to the to the observations of consumption and the excess of American consumer culture. And I don't know that a, an American would necessarily have honed in, in in the same way that he did, or he wouldn't, they maybe wouldn't have been able to kind of pull out some of the, the more humorous aspects because in many ways we're just accustomed to seeing them, but they're very novel to, to someone coming from the UK. Yeah, definitely. So Sheila, you're one of the local photographers who is showcasing one of her photographs, Invisible Empire. Can you describe that for us? Invisible Empire explores the tension at Stone Mountain Park and outside of Atlanta. And it came about through my experience documenting the Black Lives Matter movement for seven years, from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. These police killings had became part of the daily lives of Black folks. So I've been thinking about how this psychological trauma have affected the community from slavery, Jim Crow, up into now. So I started researching the myth and reality of the Southern South and critically looking at the roots of white supremacy through the lens of landscape. I felt that taking it off of the body and looking at the land, it was a way for me to amplify, to talk about it in a different way. And I think this would be a chance for us, what I mean by us, the culture of America, to lift the banner of humanity by facing this painful legacy of violence towards Black bodies breaking this generation, generational trauma through all of us, not just Blacks, but whites too. And like you said, you've documented a lot of the Black Lives Matter protest. And in your 1960 Now photography book, you combine portraits of past and present social justice activists. Was it challenging for you when the High Museum came to you and asked you to produce new work? They commissioned you to produce new work for this exhibit specifically that wasn't going to be a portrait of a person. Yes, that challenge for me because I've been photographing people forever, taking portraits. And it wasn't to the end of 2019 where I was challenged by the Washington Post to go out and talk about racism. And I took it upon myself to not photograph people and wanted to tackle Stone Mountain Park. And so when the High Museum called me, I thought it would be a great opportunity to challenge myself as an artist 
to go out into the landscape because landscapes are abstract, you know, and I felt it would be good, a good challenge for me. And now I love photographing the landscapes now and how I could talk about it in a different way where we're not looking at bodies or labels of people. Just look, you know, because I want, I think I um, said this before, but I want people to really listen to these images. And the way that I photograph them is actually, you know, black and white and they're dark, they're haunting, but they're beautiful. It has an ominous type feel to it because it, the photograph's a black and white picture of a lake. Is that like right next to Stone Mountain? That is in Stone Mountain. That's Stone Mountain Park. So I photograph different areas within the park. There's different areas just, you know, it's not just the um, climbing the mountain. So these are different areas within the park. Gotcha. It's a beautiful work. It's very ominous. I, I like it. it makes you look in and kind of sit with it and just kind of feel what you were feeling when you took that photograph. Right. Invisible Empire, I came up with the name of it by, um, I was reading an essay by W.E.D. Du Bois that he'd written in 1915. And he said, Georgia is beautiful, yet on its beauty rests something disturbing and strange. And that gave me the idea and the concept of how to actually photograph Stone Mountain. Wow. Well, you did it beautifully. Thank you. Really. So, Greg, I know the collection of photographs from over 25 years <laughs> has to be very extensive and difficult to choose from. How did you decide which photographs you wanted to encapsulate these last 25 years of picturing the South in this exhibit? What was your decision-making process like? We wanted to make sure that we were showing all of the commissions and we wanted to show them in as much depth as we as we could. We have um, over 300 pictures from the Picture of the South commissions in, in the collection. Uh, we were fortunate enough to get the, the museum's largest special exhibition space. So we had a lot of walls to work with. So in terms of selecting it, you know, there, there weren't too many cases where we were leaving things out. You know, it was, you know, a picture here, a picture there from most of the, um, from most of the commissions. What was more challenging was two things. With, with some of the early commissions, we only had um, four pieces by Sally Mann and four pieces by Dawood Bay. And that didn't seem um, to really encapsulate Kind of the, the depth of the work that they, they had done. So we had to track down some other pieces that they had made um, as part of the commissions, but that just had not ended up in, in our collection. And that was a little tricky, particularly with Dawood's work, because they weren't always titled with a location that they were made in Atlanta. Um, so it was a matter of finding pieces that were made in 1996 and then contacting Dawood and saying, was this from Atlanta? Was this from Atlanta? And him being able to remember what had, what had been made in Atlanta. But then trying to figure out how to actually arrange the work throughout the galleries, because all of the, the different commissions were done completely independently of one another. They're, you know, they're all discrete bodies of work. And the connecting thread is that they were made in the South and that they were commissioned by the High. But otherwise, they don't really have much that, that unites them. There are certainly common interests, like an interest in the landscape and particularly the, the impact that humans have had on the environment there's an, an ongoing interest in the history of the South and how the history of the region continues to manifest itself in the present. So trying to find some of those commonalities and those thematic links between the work was really the biggest challenge to make sure that the exhibition flowed 
um, together in a way that, you know, when the when a viewer is going through it, they're not feel like they're being jolted around. The first gallery you walk into is Sally Mann and and Sheila, and they're both you know they're both Southerners, both looking at the landscape. The work is made twenty five years apart. They both have an interest in in history, you kind know, of the marks that history has left on the land, and just the, the way that, that that work speaks to one another, the, the way that, you know, Sally's pictures of Civil War battlefields and uh, plantations and the way that Sheila's dealing with Stone Mountain and that legacy of white supremacy on the land, that conversation across pictures and across that, that span of time, you know, is, is, really, um, is really fascinating and is a really productive pairing of the, those works. Mm-hmm. No, I was really glad to see Sally Mann is going to have another opportunity to exhibit her photographs because I know last year her show was kind of closed early in January 2020 due to um, some leaks. Which photographs of hers will be showcased? Some of them were shown at Jackson Fine Art around the same time that A Thousand Crossings was here at the High, but the four that are in the High's collection were not were not included in A Thousand Crossings. It's kind of a the work that she made for the commission is it's kind of a it's a smaller I guess I would say somewhat of a transitional series so she was when she got the commission she was just wrapping up immediate family the work that she became very well known for photographing her her children on their farm in Virginia and she'd been taking pictures of the landscape around the farm uh, a little bit here and there but the the commission from the high really gave her an opportunity to fully invest in photographing the landscape and also to work with experimental photographic materials, which was something she hadn't really done up until that point. So before she um, really struck on wet collodion, which is a material she's been working with for the last 25 or so years, she was working with a material called orthofilm, which is um, more sensitive to the blue spectrum of light and makes these very contrasty images. But it was also very old film that had been expired. So there was fogging and it kind of made the the pictures look even more haunted because the, the act qualities were really enhanced by the I guess the chemical quirks or flaws in the film. So this was a, a, a series where she was she was trying to figure out how to photograph the landscape, both how to compose the picture, but also what materials to use that to really evoke that sense of the southern landscape that she was going for. And it was you know she was able to kind of figure that out while working on on this commission. It opened up a lot of different possibilities for her by having having that opportunity to experiment. Yeah. You mentioned Dawood Bay last year. He had a retrospective exhibit at the High Museum called Dawood Bay, an American Project. What photographs will be shown in this exhibit that differs from that one? So the the photographs we have by Dawood from the commissions are from a series that he did throughout most of the 1990s where he was working with a very large format Polaroid camera that produced images that are 20, or prints rather, that are 20 by 24 inches. And he would piece them to multiple of these images together to make a single portrait. So we did have a number of other works from that series in an American project, but none of these pictures that we're showing in Picture in the South uh, were not included in that show. Can you describe them? Like what they- Yeah, so they're they're either made up of four or six panels and they show African-American high school students from um, a high school in in East Point, where he was working. And so what he does is he- kind of gets in close to you know person's face or part of their body and then makes multiple images that he pieces together to to form like a, a you know a, a larger portrait but the images are somewhat out of alignment 
you know, maybe the person's looking one way in this picture, looking slightly a different way in the next one. Um, so they don't perfectly line up across the frames. But what he was really interested in those images is how that way of kind of fracturing the image and piecing it back together implies the, the depth and complexity of a person and how a single image really can't encapsulate the, the entirety of, the, of that person's being, of their personality, of their character. But with multiple pictures, you can kind of hint at, at those complexities. One of the photographs was by Kel Alford. It's of these two young boys who are standing up through like a wooden bridge in a bayou in Louisiana. And they're just like covered in mud. And the older boy has his arm around what I believe to be his younger brother. And they have this kind of like serious look on their face as if they just got caught. It was just a really sweet photo. And I was curious, what does Kale mostly document in her photographs? Kale was, I mean, when she started making uh, this work about um, coastal Louisiana, she had been a combat photographer. She photographed in the Balkans and in Iraq. And she, she was you know, in, in the thick of war, uh, documenting those events. Um, she got an assignment from a Dutch magazine to photograph the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And so she was in New Orleans in 2005. And w- while she was there, she decided to travel a couple hours south to these two small communities that were inhabited by two different Native American tribes. But her grandmother had actually grown up there. And so she had a you know familial connection to these places, but she'd never visited. So she kind of wanted to see what it was like, see if she could locate any of her, her relatives. And that was kind of the, the start of the project. And she was drawn in both by that deep personal connection that she had to the place, which actually turned out most of the people who she was photographing didn't really... They didn't, they didn't care so much that her, her ancestors had come from there, but they were, you know, they were interested in what, why she was interested in them. These were two tribes that had not been recognized by the federal government and so had not received a lot of the, the resources that they might otherwise receive. And additionally, the, the land that they lived on was very rapidly falling into the, the Gulf of Mexico um, because of oil drilling, which had kind of eroded the underlying uh, soil below the the marshes and the ocean, but also because of sea level rise due to climate change. So I think this the statistic was at the time uh, a football field's worth of land was falling into the ocean every day in this area. And there was you know these ele- these kind of converging elements of uh, kind of a, f- a fading way of life by these uh, Native American tribes, but also that you know their homes were literally washing into the ocean. Um, so kind of these these big forces of history state power, and then also climate change and you know, the, the corporate influence on, on the land and how that was decimating the way of life for, for these people. So there's a you know, bit of, mm-hmm. of urgency in the pictures that she's making. There is. And the wooden fence that I mentioned, the boys popping through, it's like a dilapidated bridge that's going from the land to what you think is like a boat dock of some sort. So, but you can see it's broken. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible body of work. So lastly, Greg... How can an exhibition such as Picturing the South showcase what makes the South so distinctive and unique to the rest of the United States? I mean, I, I think that what, what the exhibition tries to do and really what, what the photographers have tried to do with their work is to kind of show how, how varied and diverse and layered the South is. I think the South is probably one of the, one of the more stereotyped and misunderstood parts of the country. You know, it's something that's kind of uh, it's mythologized in films and in literature, music. Obviously, 
news reports. And I think there's this sense of, you know, that this, the South is kind of one way that maybe there's a certain lack of sophistication or maybe a backwards way of approaching certain kinds of situations. And I, and I think what the, what a lot of the photographers have tried to do is debunk a lot of those myths and kind of show really the, the depth and complexity of the region and the people that live here. And while not shying away from some of the, the darker, more challenging parts of the, the history of the South, but kind of challenging some of those preconceptions. And then, you know, with the work like people like Sheila are doing really kind of holding the region to task in some ways and finding ways to recognize where we've maybe come short and where we can, where we can improve. But to just show that, you know, we're not, we're not hitting one note here, that there's, there are a lot of different things going on in terms of the, the landscape, the people, the culture. It's just a very, it's a, it's a varied and nuanced place. That was the High Museum's curator of photography, Gregory Harris, and Atlanta photographer Sheila Pre-Bright, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. More information about the High's Picturing the South series is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, We'll listen back to A Creative Spark from comedian Greg Fitzsimmons. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. How about we end today's show with a laugh? Comedian Greg Fitzsimmons is an Emmy Award-winning writer and stand-up known for his dry, self-deprecating humor. When we last spoke in 2019, he shared what it was like starting his stand-up career while still a student at Boston College. Yeah, I was in college and I was going to class during the day. And then my dream since I was a kid was to do stand up. And so there was a stand up comedy club next door to my dorm at Boston University. And so I would go to class and then at night I would hang around the club and try to get five minutes where I could. And at the time, the scene was so fertile in Boston. There were so many amazing comedians that you've never heard of Don Gavin and Steve Sweeney and people that Irish names. They were all Irish comedians. Yes. Kenny Rogerson and Mike Donovan. And, and these were guy, David Fitzgerald. They were all guys that came out. A lot of them were tough guys. They came out of South Boston and Dorchester and they had a real attitude. They, and the crowds were tough. They were rowdy. Like Bill Burr. Bill Burr came out of that scene and, you know, Dennis Leary. And so, it was really like a scene where you would go into a sports bar and they would keep the TVs on. They would have a Red Sox game playing <laughs> over your shoulder while you're trying to make them laugh and they're doing shots of Jameson's. <laughs> Fights would break out. I got I got beat up on stage one night. No. Yes. What I, did you say that provoked that person? Well, it was a uh, it was a Jewish singles night at a club called Ironically Stitches. <laughs> And this guy was there, and he was uh, he was he was an Israeli cab driver, 
And I remember because his name was Simpka. And I told him, oh, that was the name of the village idiot in Woody Allen's movie Love and Death. And so uh, the crowd laughed. And he was there because he thought he was going to meet a nice Jewish girl. But they were all girls that were going to Boston University. And they were looking to marry doctors from Harvard. And they didn't want to date a cab driver. So he was kind of crushed. And so he started heckling me. And so I naturally had to fight back. And then he, he finally looked at me and he says, Nothing more. Ooh. And I said, all right, let me know when your friends get here. So he came up on stage with his <gasps> fist clenched, and he came at me, and I hit him in the forehead with the uh, microphone, one of those old Game of Thrones microphones <laughs> with the steel mesh over the head <laughs> yes, of it. Yes, a medieval microphone. A medieval microphone. And he, he got me in a headlock, and he spun me around the stage by my neck, knocked down all the tables. The bouncers came up. They broke it up. And uh, and so the show stopped, obviously. And then they, they set up the tables again. And then the owner of the club comes up to me and he goes, all right, Fitzsimmons, you got five more minutes. Set me back <laughs> up again. And I got a standing ovation. It was my first standing ovation because it's Boston and they would rather see a fight than a comedy show any night. <laughs> God, that gives new meaning to showstopper. That's right. I should say. <laughs> I'm a showstopper. Now, how did you go? from this passion for stand-up to writing comedy? Well, I was doing so much stand-up, and then we had a baby. Me and my wife had a baby. And so for the first year, I was gone so much, and it was just taking too much of a toll on my wife. And I said, I got to get off the road. So I called a few friends, and uh, I got a meeting with Cedric the Entertainer, who is one of the most talented, funny, gifted people I've ever met. I love his work. And so he brought me in, and I I sat down with him for 15 minutes, and I pitched him jokes, and he laughed, and he hired me. And so from that, and that was about 18 years ago. And since then, I've been writing for TV about half the year and then doing stand-up half the year. You wrote a book about your childhood mishaps, Greg, and it has illustrations of the original disciplinary notes from teachers to your mom, dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons. What kind of mischief did you get into as a child? I grew up Bronx Irish, and there was a very strong sense of doing the opposite of what you were told to do. That was rewarded in my family, and it was it was the sensibility. My parents would laugh a lot of times. I'd get into trouble, and I'd, I'd come home. We'd be sitting at dinner, and then my father would pull out a letter that was sent home from the school, a disciplinary report, and he would read it. And then anything could happen. I could get slapped or I could get a big round of applause and laughter. (laughs) It all began there. It all began there. And so they would save them. And I didn't realize my mom was saving them. And I went into my aunt's basement in the Bronx about, you know, seven or eight years ago. And I found this box filled with these letters. And it was like a trophy case for them. It was like, this is what my kid did. This is how he stood up to people. And there was, you know, reports of me getting into, I got arrested a few times, spent the weekend in jail for Wait. fighting and drinking. and. But this was all prepped for your stand-up. Yes, exactly. This was all good fodder. And it was what the book became about. And I, I, would, I printed the letters in the book. And then in each chapter, I would talk about what was going on in my life. And a lot of it really was deep-seated problems with my father that I had as well you know we had a rough relationship but I also loved him very much and so I didn't set out to write that I just set out to do a humorous book about the letters 
And then in the year that I wrote it, I started going deeper and deeper into my relationship with my dad. And so the book was, I think, more heartfelt than I set out for it to be. Comedian Greg Fitzsimmons, his podcast, Childish, publishes every other Wednesday. And the latest episode was released today. That interview was from his 2019 visit. And you can hear the entire conversation on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., director Kyle Brumley and actor Kinsey Aaron tell us about their musical production of Dogfight at the Woodstock Arts Theater. Plus, we'll hear from rising star violinist Geneva Lewis about her blues-inspired upcoming concert at Emory Schwartz Center. City Lights senior producer is Kim Tropes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E at Latta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.